Please turn with me in your Bibles, first of all, this morning to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52 is found on page 1144 of the Bibles and the Benches. We're going to read the first ten verses of Isaiah 52 because it will give us insight into what the Pharisees are thinking when they're questioning Jesus in Luke 17. So this is God's holy word. Awake, awake, O Zion, and clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, O Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and the defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust and rise up, sit enthroned, O Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For this is what the Lord says, You were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, At first my people went down to Egypt to live, and lately Assyria has oppressed them. And now what do I have here, declares the Lord? For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock them, declares the Lord. All day long my name is constantly blasphemed, therefore my people will know my name, and therefore in that day they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare His holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. And then to Luke chapter 17. Where we continue on in our series in Luke's Gospel. We've come to verse 20 of chapter 17, page 1627. This also is God's holy word. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is among you. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, there he is, or here he is, and do not go running off after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. 
But he first must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed all of them. And it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be taken in one, or two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord? They asked. And he replied, Where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. So far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ and dear friends, at the time, you see, everybody was wrestling with the question of when the world, as they knew it, was going to come to an end and the world was going to be charted off onto its new course on into the future. I mean, the Pharisees were thinking about this question. When is the world going to end? When is everything going to change dramatically? The disciples are wrestling with this question. All the common people of Israel are wrestling with the question, when is this world going to come to its decisive end? The world as we know it going to end and going to be charted off into a new course. And of course, as Israelites at the time, they weren't just thinking about the end of the world similar to the way that a lot of people today think about the end of the world. They may examine it merely from a biological perspective. Figure out how long it will take before the sun will melt the earth and global warming will have taken over or how long it will take for the earth to become flooded. Or they're not only thinking of it as a political event either. We tend to think about the end of the world coming at the hands of of a nuclear bomb by some rogue nation. But as an Israelite, when you're thinking about the end of the world as you know it, and the world going on, charting its new course, after that great day, you're knowing that God is the one who is going to decisively enter history and bring that day to pass. And that's why the Israelites, when they're thinking about the end of the world, and it's charting off into a new course for all of eternity, they are calling it the kingdom of God. Because God is the one who is going to enter history and have the power to effect that massive change. And the first thing that we'll have to understand to hear what Jesus is teaching us about the end of the world is to think about what the Pharisees are expecting when they ask Jesus, you know, when is the kingdom of God coming? What is it that the Pharisees in particular thought about the kingdom of God, about the world that they knew coming to an end and charting off into a new course? Well, there were three things, basically. And the first thing was at the forefront of the Pharisees' mind. 
And you've heard us talk about it before. And it was that the nation of Israel, which was God's special nation, would be delivered politically from all of its oppressors. And of course Israel, as we read from the prophet Isaiah, has had oppressors as foreign nations for many, many years. In fact, all of their history. They were oppressed by Egypt when they lived in Egypt. They were uh, living as slaves. They were oppressed by Assyria. Oppressed by all of their neighbors, really, continually throughout their history. And at this time, Israel was oppressed, as the Pharisees saw it, by the Roman government. And so one thing that they knew is that God at some point would come into the world and decisively deliver Israel from the Roman oppressors. All of the political oppressors of the nation of Israel would be vanquished and Israel would be risen to prominence. Zion would be made beautiful so that nobody in the world could ever doubt that Israel was God's special nation. That's what we heard, right, in the language of Isaiah. And it's all throughout the Old Testament. But the kingdom of God coming meant another thing to the Pharisees. These Pharisees believed that accompanying the deliverance of the nation from all of her political oppressors would be their personal exaltation to the highest places of authority in the new established Israelite kingdom. So the Pharisees, as you know, had a very high view of their own status in the sight of God, right? They believed that they had the secret and right and carefully studied interpretation of the Mosaic Law and that they were the ones who had been obedient to it and what they were waiting for in the Kingdom of God was God to come and say, finally, publicly, in front of all of the world and even in front of all the other Israelites, these are the ones who I approve of, these are the ones you should listen to, these are the holy ones, the righteous ones who have been obedient to me and I am giving them the authority to rule all of the new heavens and the new earth off of the throne of Israel forever. And that's what the Pharisees were expecting when the kingdom of God would come. And the third thing along with that, of course, was that they expected that this new world would not be like the old world in the sense that it would not be subject to all of the frustrations and the sufferings, really, that characterized life in the old age. So they would think about their own physical breakdowns of their bodies. They would think about uh, the frustrations that they had in relationships. They would think about the difficulties, perhaps, in their economy and the frustration of having to work and work and work and never really making things stable. You know how it is. They lived in the same age that we live in. And they said that the new heavens and the new earth, when God came in, the kingdom of God, He would unleash His power and He would bring in the glorification as part of this kingdom of God. Now maybe you notice that in all three of these things that they expected the Pharisees to happen when the kingdom of God came that really there's an element of truth in all of them isn't there I mean we read the prophecy in Isaiah didn't we that said Israel would be delivered from all of her oppressors for the sake of God's holy name so that people would stop despising the name of God and saying that he's a false God because supposedly Israel is his nation but look what happens to Israel And the prophets repeatedly, don't they, talk about the deliverance of Israel and the prominence of Israel in the earth. And we say, well, was there anything wrong with the Pharisees' understanding of the breaking of the kingdom of God 
into the world as it pertains to Israel being delivered? And the answer is, well, yes. There's a big thing wrong with it. And a lot of people today still get that big thing wrong. When they read all of the prophecies in the Old Testament about Israel being delivered from all of her oppressors, how do they understand that being fulfilled? Well, the Pharisees thought, what, politically, that their group of people in that land would be risen up as a physical nation over all the rest of the nations of the earth? You even hear people today talking like that for different reasons than the Pharisees. But when they think of the kingdom of God coming, when they think of the world as we know it ending and charting off into its new course as the new heavens and the new earth, they think of the rise politically of Israel. Right? And they try to base that on the same prophecies that the Pharisees would. And what does the scripture say about that? Well, 1 Peter 2.9, just listen to this language. The Apostle Peter says, you, he's talking to the church, He's talking to the church that is full of people, perhaps some Jews who have been saved, but also people who are not Jewish, perhaps like some like you and me who come from pagan nations. Somewhere along the line, the gospel was preached and we believed and were saved. And he says to this multi-ethnic group of people, they're not political Jews, you see. He says to them, you are a chosen people You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You, as the people of God, who are not just made up of Jews, Israelites, but you are made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You are the holy nation of God. Revelation 21 thinks about the coming of the kingdom of God, doesn't it? In its final state. And it thinks about the holy city, the new Jerusalem that God is establishing. And what does it say? I'll just read to you one verse. Revelation 21, 24. It says, The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. So who is living in the holy city, the new Jerusalem, at the end of time when the kingdom of God has come fully? Well, it's all the peoples of the earth. The image here is that all of the kings of the earth, all of the people, will be dwelling together and glorifying our God through Christ together as the one nation that we are called by the Apostle Peter. So the point is, when the Pharisees are thinking about the coming of the kingdom of God as political deliverance for Israel, you see, they don't understand the prophecy. Because really, the coming of the kingdom of God, establishing Israel, is Christ coming to establish His church and one day, in the glorification in the end, to make His people the great nation of the earth. So the Pharisees are a little bit short-sighted, of course. They're only thinking about Israel. And this is why people today get distracted too. They're thinking about Israel and politics in terms of the kingdom of God. And that has nothing to do with the fulfillment of the prophecies of the scripture. We are the nation of God being established as the church. We are one nation, no matter what earthly nation we come from. We are united with our brothers and sisters of Jewish descent, of any other descent around the world, who have true faith in Jesus Christ. And one day we will, in the new heavens and the new earth, be the nation living righteously in that glorious place. And we will have no oppressors, 
No one to challenge the will of God. No one to challenge us when we will worship Him in all of eternity. So you see the Pharisees had an element of truth in that one, but they they missed the, the point. They missed the substance. And what about that idea of the Pharisees that they would be the ones who would be risen to prominence in that new heavens and the new earth? In Jerusalem. What about that? Well, there's an element of truth there too, isn't it? Because we do expect when the Lord returns that He is going to vindicate His people. You know the people out in the society now that look at you and look at me and say, what is wrong with you? I mean, you have to be, as an enlightened person, you have to be some kind of a not very smart person to really believe the Scripture, to actually go and spend your life following a God who supposedly has revealed Himself in this book, okay, you people who are becoming a little bit fanatical, not to speak of those our brothers and sisters who would be slaughtered for believing the Christian faith. And we believe that when the Kingdom of God comes in its finality, that we are going to be vindicated, aren't we? But the difference between our belief about that and the belief of the Pharisees is what? It's that we don't believe that we've earned it. We don't believe that we somehow are the ones who deserve it because, oh, good for us. We're the ones that kept strong while everybody else told us to forsake, uh, forsake Christ. And even if you talk to the martyrs, the martyrs will not tell you, even as they're suffering, that they deserve in and of themselves to be rewarded for what they've done but they'll have the attitude of the slave which says what? I've only done my duty it is my great privilege and isn't it our great privilege to be persecuted perhaps or marginalized for the sake of Christ and one day we will be vindicated and we will be seated in positions of authority and we will be able to enjoy all the blessings that God will pour out on us and we will rule under the gracious rule of the Lord Jesus Christ but it's not because of something we've done you see there's a difference it's because of the grace of Christ and the compassion He's had to bring us out of our darkness into light and also the Pharisees were right about the fact that the kingdom of God would be glorification too I mean we expect that we do know that at the glorification all of our troubles will be relieved all of the things in the creation will be reversed all the curse all of the evil consequences of the fallen world will be washed away no more tears no more death no more struggles with health no more trouble in the economy no more having issues making ends meet right this is coming in the glorification and the Pharisees had that right So knowing what the Pharisees are expecting for the glorification, think about their question again. In verse 20. When, Jesus, is the kingdom of God going to come? And then you know by his reply that they're thinking something else. Look what he says. He says, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, Here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is among you. Well, it's obvious by Jesus' answer, isn't it, that the Pharisees, expecting this kingdom of God to break into the world, are expecting it to be accompanied by signs. I mean, it's either dramatic, cosmic signs 
certain kinds perhaps of uh, earthquakes or natural disasters that they will be able to point to and say, okay, now we know that our deliverance is coming right at hand. Or at least, if not something catastrophic and cosmic and big, maybe it'll just be loud political or sociological shifts in their culture. Maybe they'll see the weakness of the Roman Empire. Maybe they'll see a war where Rome is not able any longer to keep their eye on Israel, to keep them under their thumb. They are expecting that they will see signs that they will clearly be able to see and then say that the kingdom of God is coming very soon thereafter. And they, of course, want Jesus to tell them what those signs are. Now, I thought this was interesting, but why are the Pharisees asking him about this? I mean, especially recently through the gospel, we've seen the opposition to Jesus by the Pharisees increasing and increasing, right? And I mean, Jesus was not shy about telling them what he thought about them, and they increasingly were not shy about telling him what they thought about him and they are planning all kinds of things to come after him and to get him to be quiet but it's, it's fascinating to me that what is in their minds the thing that they're anticipating the most and the, the, the greatest truth about reality to them is the coming of the kingdom of God as they understand it and they are asking Jesus when it's going to happen even though they don't listen to him most of the time uh, they don't look at him as one who is a reliable source of information because of course every time he is teaching he's contradicting them and every time he is teaching he is leading people to see their hypocrisy and they're losing power in the eyes of the people and that makes them disgusted and yet what's interesting is they do go to him to ask him about the signs of the kingdom that is coming why? well they even in the hardness of their own hearts had to be sensitive to the power that he was displaying in the world, right? I mean, this is one of the things that fascinates us, right, about the disobedience of the Pharisees, the hardness of their hearts. These people were walking around and watching Jesus, for example, make fish in a lake where there are no fish, right? Or come to someone who is dead and make them alive. Remember that? We've seen that a couple of times. He comes to people who are lame and he makes them walk. He comes to people who are possessed by demons, who are tormented all of their lives, who their religious scholars and their priests could not help even for a moment. And Jesus comes and casts out the demons and releases them. And the Pharisees are watching this and still they're unbelieving, right? Which is amazing. A testimony of the hardness of the human heart. All of the evidence right there for him and they reject him. But what's interesting is they're not even so base that they can't recognize that Jesus' power that he's displaying and his teachings that he's speaking have an authority that they've never seen before. And so maybe Jesus will be able to answer for us and tell us, give us the skinny on all of our curiosities about the signs of the age that is coming. But look how Jesus answers them. He says, well, okay, you've got it wrong, first of all. And he'll expand on that later to the disciples. You're not going to be able to tell when the 
final return of the Lord Jesus Christ bringing in the glorification is by what you see around you. People might even say, here it is, there it is, whatever. No, nobody has insight into that. But look at that last phrase. The kingdom of God is among you. It's not within, it's among. The kingdom of God is among you. And what Jesus is proclaiming to the Pharisees is this. That the power that will end the world as we know it today and chart its new course off into the new heavens and the new earth and the glorification and the resurrection life where all of the curse is wiped away. The powers that will bring that to pass have already come and are operating in your midst, Pharisees. The work that needs to happen for the glorification to be accomplished is happening in your midst, in me. You see, the Pharisees, remember, thought that they had met the qualifications for the glorification to be in place by their obedience to the law, and Jesus is telling them, no, you see, that's why I'm here. Okay, I am here to be obedient to the law, and I am here to suffer, to take the punishment that the creation deserves, in order that the glorification may come, and you're seeing my power at work as I'm raising the dead. You're seeing my power at work as I'm proclaiming to lost sinners who are destined for destruction and not the glorification. As I'm proclaiming to them, you are forgiven and I will raise you from the dead. And you will live in perfect blessedness and satisfaction. You see, I had to come and do this. And the kingdom is here already. The kingdom is provisionally here. The kingdom of God has come in its first part, in my first Entrance into history. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God, our theologians say, is already. And we live at a time, like the Pharisees, where the kingdom of God is already at work. Because Christ has broken into the world. The powers of the age to come have broken into the world. He was raising the dead. And He paid for our sins as His elect people. And He rose from the grave as a guarantee that we will be risen from the grave already. And He has poured forth His Spirit to make our dead hearts alive so that we won't be like the Pharisees. But we will trust His grace to bring us into the glorification. And He feeds His people with the powers of the age to come through the Lord's Supper as we're united mystically more and more to His body. You see, the Kingdom of God has come already. And he knows that his disciples, and maybe you and me, are a little confused about that at this point. What are you saying exactly? So he addresses them. And we'll consider that briefly. He turns to them. Verse 22, the time is coming. When you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Look at verse 25. He must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. See, the Pharisees expected that everything was right in the world 
for the glorification to come. And Jesus has to instruct them and then reminds us that no, there are certain things that need to happen in order for Him to enact the glorification. Right? Jesus has to suffer and be rejected. And you as the disciples, and you and me this morning as the people of God, will have to live in an age when the kingdom of God has broken into the world, but has not yet been fulfilled completely. We will live in an age where we do not enjoy the full blessings of the glorification, because what is necessary for the glorification to happen is still being worked out. So in the case of the disciples, of course, it was the life and the death of Jesus and His resurrection, right? His triumph over death. In our day today, it's the gospel being preached to the elect around the world that all of our brothers and sisters will be gathered in, that the enemies of God are filling up the measure of their sins so that He will judge them in righteousness as is fair for Him to do. You see, there is a delayed that we have to have in our thinking. There's a delay between the powers of the age to come breaking into the world and the age actually coming to an end, the world as we know it, and being delivered off into the new heavens and the new earth as the holy nation of God. We should not be discouraged in this time. You should not be discouraged as a child of God if you look at your life and you say, I don't see any approval of God in my life. We talk to people all the time and you know what they say when things go well in their life? It's really proof to me that God cares about me. Is it? Well, yes, there's truth in that, isn't it? When something goes well in your life, if you're facing a problem and that problem gets resolved, obviously... We know that God in His good providence cares to the smallest detail of everything that He does in our lives to comfort us. But sometimes we're concerned because what could be the implication of that? That if I see something in my life that doesn't work out, if I find myself suffering, if perhaps someone whom I love dies, or perhaps I have cancer and I die young, perhaps I don't meet the bills one month, something happens to me, and I look at myself... And if I've said when things go well, well, God cares about me, what about things when they don't go well? Does that mean God doesn't care about you? And the answer is no, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care about you. If you are suffering this morning, if you are downcast, if you are lonely, if things are not breaking your way, it is not God's showing you that He does not accept you and that you're not on His side because your hope is not in this life. Whether things are going well or whether things are not going well, your hope is in the glorification. Why? Because you're not like the Pharisees. You know that there is a delay between the breaking in of the powers of the age to come. And if Jesus has paid for your sins, He will not abandon you throughout this trying life, but He will raise you up someday at the end. And if Jesus had to suffer for a time, then we may have to suffer for a time. That's why he tells you in verse 22, there is a time when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. That's to us. You have that longing, don't you? We have that longing, and we have not yet seen the day. That's because he first had to suffer and be rejected. 
And we will have to suffer following His pattern, but we will be delivered, won't we? And He gives them some further instruction about the kingdom of God. Look at verse 23. And by the way, this just runs exactly contrary to everything that most Bible-believing, professing, evangelical Protestant people believe about the end times. Just so you know, Jesus could not make it any more clear that so much of what we hear is nonsense. When he says, in verse 23, Men will tell you, there he is, here he is, and do not go running off after them. Verse 26, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day that Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Just like what? Just like you didn't see it coming. And it happened. Now what's the typical mentality? Everybody says, oh, when is the kingdom of God going to come in its finality? When is the world, as we know it, going to end and be ushered off into the new heavens and the new earth? It is going to happen when this, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. What does the Lord say about it? He says, you're not going to see signs that will indicate to you that it's going to happen. In fact, let me compare it to a couple of things for you. Verse 27. And I'll even show you how people twist. It's very interesting. Verse 27. You see, what's going to be happening? Now, this is a crazy sign, right? People are eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. No, that's not a crazy sign. That means life is going on as normal. And how about in Lot's day? Crazy sign, right? People are eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. You mean, just like every other day for the whole history of the human race, Jesus. That's no sign. And Jesus says, that's the point. Okay, you don't know because life is going to be going on as normal and then all of a sudden, Jesus will return. And everybody spends so much time talking about uh, what they think and how they can interpret these obscure prophecies here and there from the mouth of Jesus or from the prophets or from the book of Revelation, one of the most complex books, well, probably the most complex book in the scripture. And they all can come up with a very careful system of the things that you are watching. And you always hear people say, Oh, Jesus is coming in this generation. And I can tell you that. Let me give you an example from Luke 17 here, what they say. So they'll look at verse 26 and 27. And they'll say, it says, People were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. And instead of interpreting that for what it obviously says, which just means what? That life is going on as normal and nobody's caring about anything. They'll say, well, really, what it means is they were eating too much, gluttony, and they were drinking too much, getting drunk, and marrying and being given in marriage is a secret reference to sexual immorality. And you see in verse 28, people were eating and drinking and buying and selling. You see, it was materialism. And uh, it wasn't just buying and selling. Planting and building. You see, it was the vanity of humanity trying to build themselves up and reject God. And what do we say to that? We say, well, I mean, that isn't what it says. I mean, it's amazing to me 
and you hear this a lot, Christians say, look, the world is so much more depraved today than it has ever been. And so therefore we know that the kingdom of God is going to happen very soon, as opposed to before. And what do we think about that? Well, yeah, it's true, right, that there are certain forms of depravity that maybe are more popular today than they were in other days. But there were other forms of depravity in the past times that were more popular than they are today, too. So people say, well, when I turn on the television today and I see the kinds of open forms of sexual immorality, obviously there's a heightening of sin in the world and everything is going to be destroyed more quickly. And I say, well, wait a minute. I don't know, I think about, you know, the golden years, right? The good old days. And I think about the deeper and more heinous level of oppression uh, by men against women. Some things in some more, dare I say, modern cultures which have been tapered off, thankfully. So we should not twist these explanations of Jesus about when things are coming to say like there's going to be signs. It's the opposite. He's saying there won't be any other signs. Life is going to be going on as usual, just like it was with Noah, just like it was with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. People are not expecting anything catastrophic to happen, and it does. Now certainly... In Noah's time they were sinful, and in the Sodom and Gomorrah time they were sinful, and today they are sinful. That's his point. It's the same thing, and it's going to happen suddenly, and you're not going to be able to know that it's coming. Except to know that it is coming, whenever it comes. And verse 24, The Son of Man in His day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. In other words, what? It's not going to be mistakable. Alright? The disciples, by the way, after Jesus leaves, there are a number of false messiahs that rise up in the Jewish culture and claim to be the Messiah. These guys are out off into the desert or in the mountains. They're these religious fanatics that claim to be the one who is the representative of God to bring in the final coming of the kingdom. And Jesus is kind of warning them against those following those people that's what he said there he is here he is don't go running after them and the broader point is that it's not possible to miss Jesus when he returns okay I mean if you skip down to the end of the the passage look at verse 37 they ask him where Lord now people have struggled to understand what exactly they were asking him And they struggle that because the other texts which describe parts of Jesus' teaching about this in other places in the Gospels, some of them, uh, some of the language is put in different order. So it's hard to connect that question to exactly what Jesus was talking about. But I would say that in verse 37, when the disciples ask Jesus, Where, Lord? What they're asking him is, Where are you going to be when you return? Right? Because that's what they're concerned about. They don't want to miss him. And that's why he's been teaching them what he says in verse 24. You can't miss it when he returns. 
You've got to get your mind off of these little small political things that you think are going to happen. Like this ruler is going to rise up. You've got to track his career and then you'll see that he's the one and you can put your trust in him and he'll ultimately win out a slow victory. That's not what the final coming of the kingdom is. The final coming of the kingdom is decisive and nobody will miss it when he comes. And the image that he gives is lightning. And if you've ever been out in the desert or perhaps in the Great Plains and you see lightning... There is no question that what you are seeing is lightning. Right? I mean, maybe in the city, if you see a flash, maybe you think, oh, a fuse blew out. Right? Or somebody was snapping their camera, and the flash is what I saw. But if you're out in a desert area or in the Great Plains and lightning strikes, there is no question what it is. And it is visible from miles around. And that's what the return of Christ will be. Visible to everyone. Universal. The kind of thing that the world has never seen. He will shine like He shone when He was transfigured on the mount. He will shine with the radiant glory of the Shekinah glory of God Himself as it's revealed to humanity in that day. You will not miss it. There's one thing about the return of Christ, you will not miss it. You will not expect it, meaning you can nail down the period of time or the age in which it's going to happen, and you will not miss it. He will appear everywhere. That's what he means by where there is a dead body, the vultures will will gather. The point there is that when he comes in judgment at the end, He will be where he is exercising judgment over all of his creation. Everywhere. A vulture goes to a dead body. Jesus, when he returns, goes to judge his people. Goes to establish his kingdom. Closing thought for us. Instruction for us about the coming on that great day of the Son of Man. Verse 31. No one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. No one in the field should go back for anything. Verse 34. I tell you on that night two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. What's he talking about? And by the way, if you noticed... There's no verse 36, right? Printed in your Bibles. It's because verse 36 is not in the better biblical manuscripts that we have preserved for us today. So there probably isn't a verse 36 like some of the other translations would put in there. Not a big deal. But what does Jesus mean when he says you shouldn't go down from the roof of your house to get the goods inside or you shouldn't go back from the field to get anything when the Son of Man returns. Well, obviously, when he returns in his judgment, there is not going to be time for anybody to go back and get anything anyway, right? That's the final, decisive return of Christ. That's it. The dead in Christ will rise. His people will be glorified along with him and the evil ones will be judged. That's it. There's no second chances So he's giving an image here. He's speaking metaphorically. He's saying what? That you should not find yourself, when the judgment comes, attached 
to the things of this world. In other words, we should be ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in that we know that what we are all about is the glorification that is coming, not the things of this life. And we know that that glorification is ours because we have confessed our sins to Christ who has lived and died for our sins and demonstrated His power in raising from the dead. And if we know that we are found in Him now, then we are not attached to the things of this life, we are attached to the things of the life that is coming and that will be ours when He returns. And the Son of Man on His day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. And the world as we know will come to an end and you will be ushered into the new heavens and the new earth as the holy nation, the people of God and blessed and satisfied. And whatever you're facing this morning, good or bad, don't put your hope or your stock in it. You put your stock in the life that is coming. And that all God's people said, Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gracious promise of our life which is coming. And help us not to be deceived and look for signs outside of the promises in your word that you are coming. And thank you that you will deliver us by your grace and satisfy us in the fullness of the kingdom of God. Amen.